AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for June 16, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. We are joined today by Manny Ortiz. Manny, welcome. Thank you. I'm not sure why I picked you. It just seemed like you were in the middle of the red, white, and blue here. So let's go with it. <laughs> Matt Kaiser, welcome, Matt. How's it going, Brian? And uh, John Hogovum, welcome, John. Way down here on the end. Way down the other end. And uh, I'm Brian Rexrode. And uh, you know, we're going to be talking a little bit about a couple of pieces of uh, malware today. We'll start with you, John, oh, okay. with the uh, Stego loader. Yeah, so this is an interesting family of malware. Um, the guys at Dell Secure Works put this article out. Um, it's called GATAC. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's another information stealer. But the, there's some interesting aspects of this one, which I kind of thought was worthwhile talking about because it's kind of uh, highlights some of the evolution mm -hmm. of malware and some of the techniques they're using to really be a lot more evasive. Yeah, you know, I, I've probably said this a hundred times, but we'll, we'll say it 101 now. It, it's evolution. Yeah. You know, it's always, and so it, as you point out, it, observing that evolution helps us to keep from having a revolution right. <laughs> in effect. Right, so we can better defend basically yeah. by understanding how they use this stuff yeah. here. But this one's interesting because it's got a lot of interesting techniques. So uh, the first thing is it's got kind of a small loader component which is the Stego loader. Um, and all that really does is it checks a few things first off. It looks to see are you running Wireshark or Ali Debug or any of these mm -hmm. interesting tools that might be in an analysis environment. Right. And if it is, it just terminates, doesn't continue doing anything. But if not, if it looks like it's okay, uh, the next thing it checks, which is also interesting, is it looks at the mouse. So if the mouse is moving constantly or not moving at all, it thinks, well, maybe that's a little suspicious. So it's looking for a pattern of like stop and start over some time span. They didn't specify exactly how long it waits. You know, that's a, a I guess, also looking for an analysis environment, right? right. Somebody is trying to simulate. Right, either simulate mouse <laughs> movements or don't simulate it at all yeah. and it's just sitting there. So, um, uh, but a normal person would probably have a little bit of stutter over time with their mouse or something yeah. uh, to indicate that there's a real human there. Uh, so if it passes those checks, um, then it goes into this loader routine. So it'll actually go download the main module for Stego Loader. Uh, but when it does this, it actually goes and grabs a, a PNG image file. So this PNG image file has using digital st steganography, which we've talked about on the show before. It's actually um, a way of kind of like at the least significant bit on the pixel images. Mm -hmm. You can put other information and the picture still looks fine maybe a little bit grayer or whatnot, but you would never notice it. Never notice. Um, and what they do is they extract out the malware is actually encoded in there. So the Stego loader gets this image, unpacks it from the PNG file, and then runs it in memory. So it's never actually on disk either. Mm. Um, and then the other interesting aspect of this, uh, this tool, this Stego loader piece of malware, is once that main module runs, the attacker, there's really nothing in there. It's kind of an empty shell. Once the attacker connects to it, they can tell it to dynamically load additional modules. And it mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily load all the modules, just the ones it needs. So it could say, well, maybe I want to get um, the list of recently opened documents. 
and it'll download that module, run it mm -hmm. uh, in memory, and um, and only you know execute that when it needs to. So, from an analyst perspective, I don't really know the intent that the user has, unless I actually see them operate and what modules they download, mm -hmm. in terms of what their actual intent is for right. for using the tool. Um, in general, it's. Um, Oh, the other thing it does is this kind of harkens back to one of the things Stan talked about once before. I forget, he has a term that he came up with this, but a lot of times we'll do static analysis on executables where we'll just try to like look at the strings that are contained inside there. Mm -hmm. um, this uh, hides all the strings by having them actually built in code. So using code, they will build the string and assemble it. But if you were to run strings you know, and look statically through the file for just things that look it. like words, you won't see any. Yeah. And I think Stan did a whole article discussion about mm -hmm. how various malware uh, families do that now like that, to yeah. kind of hide that uh, from analysis. And, uh, and then lastly, they use RC4 for the encrypting the communications back and forth. From a C2 perspective, it's very hard to write a network signature for this because it's always changing each, me each message. Uh, so it's hard to kind of write like a snort signature to look mm -hmm. for it or something like that. I'm trying to think if there's anything else in there that I wanted to mention. Um, well, this obviously is a pretty sophisticated piece of software, and it, you know, I'm, I'm thinking it seems like I'll bet that PNG file is pretty darn big, because you've got a you're kind of burying the, co the code in part of that, so you would right. expect it to be pretty large. But it, I guess uh, it, it, were, was there any information about the context in which they've uh, this was discovered or how it was uh, perhaps used? You know, they didn't, and I was curious about that myself, I didn't see any mention in the article about how it might be getting distributed to mm -hmm. users, or at least initially. So I wasn't quite clear on, you know, this, the distribution method mm -hmm. for it. Um, but in terms of the modules that they were able to see, like listing the recent documents was one. Mm -hmm. There's a geolocation module to figure out where this device is located, password stealing. And then other interesting aspect is there's a specific module just to steal IDA Pro credentials. And IDA Pro is a debug tool that a lot of right. us analysts would use to reverse engineer malware. So obviously whoever built this um, is expecting that they're going to end up in some malware analysis environment that might have IDA Pro and they can steal the license keys and maybe use them for themselves somehow. So interesting <laughs> little uh, tidbit there. Well, something on the side. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not well, cheap. It's not. <laughs> right. not, so uh, clearly, I mean, like I said, uh, clearly it's a sophisticated piece of malware. They're obviously trying to subvert detection early in the phases. You know, I'm thinking I'm going to run Wireshark on my computer for now. It's, it might be actually more effective than any virus at keeping the malware from That's running true. right. And yeah. if you want a low impact version, just just rename Notepad.exe to Wireshark.exe. Oh, there you go. And yeah. just run it on your machine all the time. Right. Have a, have one of them running. <laughs> there you go. So for every, so for every attack, there's a countermeasure, right? Right. <laughs> now, uh, uh, Stego, originally, I think you had started off with, you know, the evolution of this. Stego was originally used just to sort of pass messages between yeah. folks. Um, yeah. So you know, this evolving is just a natural state of things. Right. To be able to sneak uh, files through that uh, look like they're innocuous from an analysis standpoint, but have the code actually hidden inside. Right. Yeah. All right, so, well, you know, uh, obviously that's trying to, it, it, I guess there's not really a rootkit associated with that not necessarily. That you've, got a, you've already kind of got a 
get a handle in front of it before the uh, before the downloader actually goes in. I right, you need to probably look for that loader module is the mm -hmm. one thing if you're doing some endpoint analysis. Mm -hmm. um, because otherwise, everything else is running in memory dynamically. Okay. Well, let's shift a little bit, Manny, and talk a little bit about uh, vulnerability patching and what are the challenges that we have in that space. Right. So, so this is a, a story about obviously patching versus uh, breaking. So, and this particular story sort of uh, at least starts off talking about the um, the logjam. Mm -hmm. um, which is basically a man-in-the-middle attack. And uh, it, go, it basically goes on to, to say about, you know, this particular one, there, and there's some statistics there about how, how much it actually affected on the, on the server side versus the client side. And, it, and it's mm -hmm. a significant amount. It's something like, um, um, like 84,000 uh, websites out of the top 1 million mm -hmm. were actually affected. Um, so it's not an insignificant number, yeah. but the point is is that the patching that was required um, in essence breaks things. So mm -hmm. you end up having a good portion of your users not able to access the website that right. you're now trying to protect, right, by, em by employing the, the vulnerability fix. Mm -hmm. So that causes a huge problem for, for folks to try to now decide, you know, is it better for me to go ahead and implement the fix or does mm -hmm. it do I wait around you know for for more users to sort of move up to the next level you know to the to the non-vulnerable right. levels for me to apply the, the vulnerability the know, fix. I, and I think the classic thing is that from a you know from a outsider's point of view you know for somebody that hears a, you know a media announcement about a vulnerability the first inclination is to say wow the whole world should patch right away right and yeah. it's you know it's a almost a thought you know who would who would think to do anything differently but obviously there's some choices that have to be made right. and i think ultimately it's going to come down to i don't think there's any numerical or you know quantitative system that you're going to be able to use to say you know this is the best value right for patching versus not passing, patching. So obviously you have to ask yourself some questions and you know decide what is the best right. best approach. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, I mean, and you know we have a list of a bunch of questions that you'd sort of go through to ask yourself uh, things like you know how complex is the exploit? Is it known to be in use? Is it readily available to the would-be attackers? So you know a list of questions that you would go through in order yeah. to figure this out. And this is you know this is obviously not hard science here. It's not like, you're you know, not going to get a number from answering you're not one gonna, of those right, questions. Exactly. <laughs> it's that you're just going to sort of get a direction, but, but then you've got the, the sense of you've got a, uh, you know, whenever you deal with these, it's not just the security personnel that are involved in these mm -hmm. patch fixing uh, scenarios. You've got the other side, you've got the administrative side, the IT right. side, who are going to have that differing opinion on these things. Mm -hmm. They're going to, you're going to say patch now. That's, right. that's, you know, we, I think we can all be in agreement that you're going to want to go and just say, just patch everything. Right. They're going to say, hold on, stop. Right. You know, that's going <laughs> to, that's going to break stuff. What am I going to do for the, you know, for this other huge percentage of people who are not going to be able to get to my website now? Mm -hmm. In essence, you're breaking something, right, that right now is, is working, but mm -hmm. you're going to break it by installing a fix. Right. And so, you know, I think ultimately the question comes down to what is the, what is the risk that the vulnerability is going to get exploited? What is the extent that the exploit is going to be effective? That is, is it going to is it going to hit one or two 
victims? And is that, are there going to be insignificant impacts or is it going to basically compromise the entire website? You know, so there's, there are different, uh, you know, facets of that to, yeah. to, to consider. And, uh, you know, ultimately, is it something that's going to scale? Is it something that they're going to be able to repeat over and over and over again right. rapidly to have uh, either, you know, a more significant impact? You know, some of the cases, a lot of these SSL cases that have come up, they're active attacks. You actually have to be part of the connection. Right. You actually have to be a man in the middle, which is, you know, in essence, monitoring the traffic and actually being able to manipulate the traffic in, in place. And so that's where we've been uh, over and over thinking, you know, what is the, how realistic is this vulnerability in terms of an exploit? And there are certainly scenarios in the Wi-Fi networks where, you know, if you're really concerned about this kind of thing, you can use a VPN service to be able to protect you from, from being monitored and as a part of it. So overlay security on top of the security. Layers of security are always good, right? Are you segueing into my story right now? Yeah, we <laughs> <laughs> so let's do that. One of, actually, we're, yeah, so let's, uh, let's go ahead and segue right. into it. But the, uh, you know, I think, the, uh, you know, the points you're making here, Manny, I think are good ones that, you know, it's not just a simple decision. You have to make some good, some, uh, right. you know, yeah. put some good thought behind it. Yeah. So. so let's talk about Wi-Fi. Sure. Let's talk about <laughs> Wi-Fi. So this is an article from ours. Uh, Lenny Seltzer wrote it. It's a pretty interesting discussion on using a VPN to protect yourself on open Wi-Fi and right. why it may not always be a complete solution. So most people are aware that if you want to go and use open Wi-Fi, it's not encrypted by default, you right. run the risk of people intercepting your traffic, manipulating it, or, mm -hmm. or just sniffing it and stealing you know, credentials or whatever off the wire or right. off the ether, if you want to call it that. Uh, and usually the response is go ahead and set up a VPN, you know, mm -hmm. configure it on your, your laptop or whatever have you, and it should provide that extra layer of encryption to protect you right. and your traffic. Now, turns out it's not a perfect solution and there's a couple reasons why. Uh, the first is that when you boot up your laptop, um, your VPN in most cases is not immediately going to be kicking in. Sure. So what will happen is if your computer figures out where the Wi-Fi is and connects to it, um, there are lots of apps that run on your computer that will send background traffic without you having to do a thing. Mm -hmm. And some of these things may be critical, whether, whether may not like be, or not. whether you like it or not. <laughs> right. So, you know, if you've got some sort of instant messenger app that automatically logs in for you, mm -hmm. hopefully today, today's instant messenger apps are all using some sort of encryption, but if that's not the case, you've just sent your credentials outside of the VPN and you yeah. had, didn't have to do a thing. So there's a, and there's a number of apps where you kind of have to worry about that being the case. Mm -hmm. um, the other email clients. Email clients are another good one. Right. Anything that automatically logs you in should probably be given a good hard look. Mm -hmm. um, the other situation is that when you go to public Wi-Fi, you've also got captive portals. Mm -hmm. Now, captive portals are when you connect to the Wi-Fi and it doesn't automatically click in, and you have to go to like a web page and say, I accept the terms of service, or if you're at a hotel, you have to type in maybe your last name and your room number so that it'll say, yes, I'm a valid user, please mm -hmm. let, me in, let me in. And that all goes in the clear over the Wi-Fi. Whatever's going on in your laptop at that same time, you know, mm -hmm. it's, you've still got that period of exposure. Right, um, this is true. So what's the solution here? Um, there's a couple suggestions in the article. Some of them might be outside of the technical realm of most day-to-day -day users. Things like configuring your firewall to only allow certain ports outbound for the period of time that you're on the VPN. Uh, and there's, there's ways to set that up. Mm -hmm. It just seems like a little bit, it feels like the kind of feature that if, if you were designing an OS and you want to support Wi-Fi for people, this might be something that in the next version of your OS, 
and I'm, I'm saying this so hopefully people out there are listening, <laughs> you'll start, you'll, you'll put in firewall rules that say, you know, this is not a network I recognize. For now, I'm not going to allow any of my apps to connect out mm -hmm. until I've got either a VPN or some other situation right. is set up. Now, there's also um, another... With, you know, essentially, Windows has... It has a the lot home and the yeah, work. Yeah, and it has. If, it, if you're on a new network, it's going to ask you questions about how much you trust that network and mm -hmm. do some things. Now, I personally don't know the full extent of what it, what those, what that decision makes in terms of uh, policy. You know what what fire, controls right. it puts into place, but it it can't be bad. It can't be bad, <laughs> but it, but is it good enough? Better than yeah, nothing. the question it, is it, it is better than enough. nothing. I, I agree enough. with that. Now, there's, there's a standard called Passpoint, mm -hmm. which seems interesting. Um, and it isn't been, hasn't been widely adopted yet, but it seems to be a nice stopgap solution for that if people were to go out and implement it, where you would use a third-party credential, mm -hmm. say your Google account, or maybe one of those other single sign-ons like Facebook or Twitter provides, mm -hmm. or maybe even your ISP's username and password, where you go to an open Wi-Fi, and it, it, you connect over SSL, you log in, and that gives you a single sign-on token, which then allows you to set up a WPA2 enterprise session, which is fully encrypted, which gives you the ability to encrypt without having to like pre-authenticate everything when you show up at the coffee shop. Oh, nice. So it's, a, it's an interesting idea. I'd like to learn mm -hmm. more about it because it seems like it might solve the problem. But again, it hasn't been widely deployed right. yet. Well, in time, perhaps it will. So, uh, you know, actually, it's, it, it's an interesting development, and I think, uh, you know, something that hopefully we'll be able to progress toward in the future. All right, good. So, you know, um, so we've talked about these items. You know, what we're going to do here is introduce a new segment. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, Threat Track Top 5. And, you know, in these scenarios, we're talking about some things where ultimately your information might be stolen. And so the question is, okay, you suspect your identity has been stolen, and what are you going to do at this point? So, uh, you know, I guess what we'll do is talk about a few things. I'll take the first one here and just basically say, you know, you want to first find out what data has been stolen. And perhaps, you know, if you can, you'd like to know who has it. Because uh, who has it might have some implications on how they might use it. You know, there's a, there's a lot of press out there now about the OPM compromise. And so the question is, you know, this information is stolen. What, what might they do with it? Well, in that particular case, at least the suspicion is what they're talking about is that they're probably not going to, you know, try to open credit cards in your, uh, under your name. Uh, it probably has more to do with some strategy to be able to, uh, you know, do some sort of cyber attack against the government or something along those lines. But in any case, understanding what the data is that's been stolen, what they might be able to do with it, and what the motivations might be, would be uh, perhaps a helpful factor. So I don't know. What's uh, what do you two, think, John? Number two yeah. on the list. Number um, two. So <laughs> yeah, I guess the the number two item that we always talk about is you should probably change. As long as you know to the extent of what identities have been stolen from you, you should change your password at least on that environment or those environments. But I would recommend changing passwords on most of your systems if you can, because you, especially if you reuse the login ID, like the mm -hmm. same user ID, we always say never use the same password on any two systems or three, whatever. Always use a unique password on mm -hmm. each system. Um, and I know a lot of people probably don't follow that rule, but there are things like password safe and some of these other password safe programs that will help you create unique passwords for each site. I got um, a feeling we're going to talk about something like that later. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, we might. Well, that's a whole other issue. But in any event, uh, you know, uh, 
definitely you know, yeah. change your passwords on these systems yeah, uh, to, to prevent any chance of somebody using that information to get yeah. into your system. Yeah, they, you know, uh, so in a case where identity information has been stolen, it's a good possibility that other aspects of the information have been stolen. And, uh, you know, sometimes they are they're able to get the password hashes and perhaps use that right, to be able to get them. access to other systems. So you certainly want to be able to, to uh, protect against that. And, you know, you know, considering the type of identity information that might have been stolen, they might be able to guess some of your security questions. Yes. So that's one thing other also systems. keep in mind. Yeah, yeah so I mean, if that's stolen in there and there's some security questions, and there's another site somewhere else that you use that has the same mm -hmm. security questions or has some overlap, that could right. be a problem. They may yeah. be able to reset your password on you without, mm -hmm. you know, just by answering security questions. You know, it, I, um, it, the, there's, there's sort of a philosophy that says you should actually generate lies for the security questions and use those, I mean, they're effectively sort of pieces and parts of your password. And uh, so if you keep track of your passwords, kind of keep track of what the answers to their questions are, and they can be completely fictitious or false. Right. So, right. All right, so let's, uh, let's go to you, Manny. What do you think about number three here? So yeah, so number three, uh, being alert uh, for spear phishing. So spear phishing obviously is a huge, we know that's uh, one of the, I think one of the major uh, initial vectors for, mm -hmm. uh, for getting, um, you know, getting compromised credentials and stuff so you know what you have to be suspicious you know you, what you have to work uh, watch out for is is for these suspicious looking emails right and I think um, we've done quite a bit in terms of you know training employee training learning to figure out what you know what's right what I should click what I shouldn't click looking at uh, uh, links and making sure that you know understand where they're going to mm -hmm. um, so obviously that is an important step in in because once once your uh, credentials have been compromised what you have to expect is that there is the potential for being spearfished mm -hmm. right so once they know who you are they may actually start going after you especially if the initial information that they're gathering on you is enough to mm -hmm. get a really good spirit phishing email towards you, right? The right. more that they understand about you, the better that spirit phishing email will actually look. Yeah. What I would say is, wherever the data breach occurred, be it you know a, a retail store or a government agency, they may try and send you messages, legitimate messages from that organization. But the spear phishers may also try and pretend to be that organization. Right, right. I mean, we've yeah. seen that with the Target and Home Depot breaches, where as soon as the breach was in the news. The fishers were using that, saying, "Oh, we, you right. know, we know that you got compromised. Please click on this site and sign up for protection." But yeah. that's the fish, yeah. Right. right? Yeah. So it's not necessarily a spear fish, right? It could be a, a, a fish in general. You know, the, the, yeah. the, and I think sometimes these these are perhaps mixed up. But the, you know, the distinction between your typical fish fishing activity, you know, this is obviously an analogy to, you know, fishing with a rod. I had a friend that actually lived off of uh, on Long Island. He used to go spear fishing. And it involved diving deep, and you know you have to target a fish, and you actually have to you know kind of jab at it under the water, and meanwhile be holding your breath, and then finally come up and start over again. It's a significantly more work than just throwing some bait in the water and hoping that the fish comes to you. So, <laughs> so your your point well taken. They have the opportunity to spearfish you, be very targeted in their attack, but they also have the opportunity to take a media event, and uh, you know just throw some bait in the water and see who, who, who grabs on. Matt, how about number, <laughs> number sure. four? <laughs> number four. So um, 
notify the parties involved, and especially if these parties are a bank mm -hmm. or a credit card or any sort of financial institution or person you may have financial dealings with. Because in, in many cases, they'll have tools available or methods to protect or prevent further compromise. Right. So for example, if, 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 you're, if it's a bank you were compromised by, and hopefully the, they will be providing some sort of identity protection service, whether this is identity, like a notification service to say, oh, by the way, someone just opened a new line credit in your name, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's nice. <laughs> I would have wished that you had told me before it had occurred. <laughs> that's a possibility. Yeah. Um, in some cases, you can also set up a credit freeze, which is something right. I think uh, Brian Krebs mentioned in a recent blog post where you can actually say, don't allow any changes for the next uh, three months mm -hmm. um, and let me know if anybody tries to do anything. Yeah, so, unless you're planning on replacing your car. Well, that's that's the thing. If you if you, if you tend to, to need to take out a line of credit somewhere, this does get yeah. in your way. You can turn it back off. I think they offer a, a PIN number to okay. you. You can go back and say, this is me. Here's my PIN. I'd like to turn this off, please. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, you know, take advantage of whatever protections are out there from these organizations and let them know that this is the, this is the case. They may not know. They mm -hmm. may know. Well, and in fact, it may be uh, helpful to them to know that you as an individual, perhaps, because you may have gotten a notification through another third party that they may not have known that that credit card number, for example, had been stolen. Yeah. By letting them know, uh, it gives them an opportunity to be looking for the potential fraud because that may translate to other victims. So you may be not just protecting yourself, but helping the organization protect others. So uh, that can be pretty valuable. You know, the, uh, the banks have gotten a lot more proactive about looking for fraud activities or even looking for evidence of stolen credit cards. And they've been using that to help translate that or, or correlate that back to organizations that have been, you know, basically the victims of the theft, retail organizations, for example. And Brian Krebs, I think, has reported a number of those. You mentioned them. And so uh, having that information will help them to be able to trace it back possibly as well. So. All right, so Manny, what do you think is number five here? <clears throat> so number five, uh, subscribe to a identity theft protection service. So I personally have some strong thoughts about it, um, <laughs> but it, it's uh, it's obviously a good uh, a good thing to do once you've known that that you, potentially there's been a, a compromise. Mm -hmm. Now, in many cases, depending on the size of the of the, the compromise, this may actually be offered to you mm -hmm. as sort of consolation. Um, sort of sorry after the fact kind mm -hmm. of thing, um, but but if it if it isn't, then obviously subscribing or signing up to uh, to one of these services is is a good idea. You know, at least you have somebody there that's paying attention to the the credit side of your you know of your identity mm -hmm. to make sure that you get alerted when something sort of suspicious happens. Right. So. So and as you can see, there's sort of a theme here. You know, they're changed some things, and then the other aspect is really just kind of have some good understanding of what's going on around you and try to get some help along the way. So uh, perhaps keeping track of a lot of them for of uh, activities that are taking place, uh, watching for transactions that are taking place. I think is uh, sort of the common theme here. Yeah. Right. I was just going to interject these identity theft protection services. While you know they're not 100% guaranteed they're going to pick up. Um, and when they do, sometimes it's inconvenient for you. It's a lot more, it's a lot better to be inconvenienced every now mm -hmm. and then than to get, you know, have somebody open a credit card and then use it for $10,000 or something. Mm -hmm. And then you have to go through the whole process of 
you know, trying yeah, to repair your credit yeah. and uh, trying not to have to pay that bill and whatnot. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. So, John, you mentioned uh, password safes. Uh-huh, protectors. I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess the uh, perhaps the importance here <laughs> is to make sure that you have a quality one, and you know, one that's uh, that's taken the proper steps to be able to protect to protect things. So, Manny, maybe you can introduce this topic. <clears throat> right. So, uh, so this is the uh, uh, you know uh, the it was disclosed uh, yesterday, mm-hmm. Monday. Um, this uh, last pass basically is disclosed that they were compromised. Right now, what they're what they're saying. So the information is sort of still coming out. They're asking for more details, and I'm I'm assuming over the next couple of days and weeks we'll probably learn a little bit more. But mm-hmm. what what's known so far is that what they've got is there's no evidence that the um, encrypted vault data was compromised. Right. So mm-hmm. that's the actual the the the. The passwords themselves. Password themselves user so it's it's ID. on the authentication side to get into the vault is what is what basically got compromised. What they're saying is that email addresses. Uh, so what was taken potentially was the email addresses, mm-hmm. password reminders, uh, the server per salt uh, per user salts, um, and the authentication hashes were compromised. So that's what they're saying has been compromised at this mm-hmm. point. The good thing about this, if there's you know something to to be said that's Glass good about full. this, right? Um, I, I mean, I, I'm, I personally use this service, so and I did do, do my homework before I signed up to figure mm-hmm. out, you know, do they do this right? Do they do the crypto right? Mm-hmm. Um, and from what I've read, it does seem like they do, they do this stuff right. So, what what they're saying that they use today is um, they use a random salt with a uh, hundred thousand rounds of server side. Uh, PBK uh, DF2 SHA-256 mm-hmm. um, in, in addition to the client side rounds which is a configura- configurable on the client side so I mm-hmm. think it's a default at, uh, at 5,000 and I'm not actually sure how high that can go um, I think somebody said that they had set theirs to like 65,000 okay. which basically introduces extra rounds of, of hashing that has to happen mm-hmm. in order for you to get to crack the password so, right. so um, that means all this extra salt and whatnot put in there is going to make it inordinately difficult. Right. If yep. I was able to get all the password hashes as an attacker to be able to crack them, is going to be very difficult. Yeah. Or take more time than I'm going to be alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And matter, with and the matter, current technology. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, the the one the thing that I read here was that they had said that on an NVIDIA GTX Titan X, which is some spectacular video card, which mm-hmm. I'm going to have to look into to buying for my rig at home. Um, but uh, it's supposedly one of these, you know, huge, what they use for doing like the Bitcoin mining and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it would take an attacker, uh, it, an attacker can make fewer than 10,000 password guesses uh, for a single pa- uh, uh, password hash. Mm-hmm. For a second. For a second, second, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, when you think about that, um, you know, looking at looking at what uh, if you've got a substantially complex password, mm-hmm. um, you're talking about a significant amount of time to go after just mm-hmm. a single password within that uh, within right. that. Those. So this is a case where you know because this isn't a online password submission activity. You know, you've already got the hashes. Associated with it, uh, what they're really trying to do is make it computationally expensive 
to guess a password, right. which is ultimately what, and so by putting all these rounds on here, right. and not even necessarily knowing how many rounds you have to submit, right? <laughs> because right. it's a client-side configuration, it could, it makes it significantly more difficult. So the, uh, you know, you've got to pay a lot of money basically to guess passwords effectively. Yeah. And so the question ultimately becomes, can you round up enough resources to make it compute? You know, if you're going after a particular target, that's one thing to try to do it across the uh, gamut of the, uh, you know, the victims that have had information stolen here right. is uh, another thing entirely. So uh, certainly it buys you time <laughs> to right. go out and change your passwords. <laughs> exactly. Yep. One, one thing I also wanted to mention about this that we didn't really say is that LastPass is a cloud-based yeah. password storage fault. Mm -hmm. and uh, there's Which has its advantages. It does, because you can get to it from anywhere, you know? Mm -hmm. if yeah. It doesn't have to be on the one computer I use, or I don't have to manage moving it around between computers and whatnot mm -hmm. on a thumb drive or something. But there are um, software-based ones that you can get. Um, and there are ones that can run on a thumb drive. It'll keep, mm -hmm. you know, the programs on your thumb drive, and you just plug it in, you run the program, it's got the passwords and they're all encrypted as well, stored in encrypted data files, so uh, they're not easy to get out even if someone was able to get your thumb drive. Right. So anyway, I just want to make the distinction that between a cloud-based service offering, which LastPass is, versus mm -hmm. some of these other local ones that um, a lot of us use, you know, yeah. a lot of people use Clearly, co Clearly a distinguishing factor when you're going to select a, a password safe. Right. All right. All right. So, so, one, so the last item here was just to um, you know what? What should you do at this point if you've got if you've got a LastPass account? Um, obviously, go in and change your master password. Mm -hmm. um, also, they recommend um, you changing your password reminder once you've changed your your uh, your password, mm -hmm. your master password. And also, they uh, they offer the option for two factor, so enable two factor. Yeah. So um, that just adds that extra level of protection. Good idea. Yep. All right. Good. We talked about one type of malware earlier, pretty sophisticated one. We're going to transition to this one's a lot more sophisticated. <laughs> another. <laughs> this one's a another, perhaps another level, huh? This is this is definitely <laughs> other level stuff. So big boy game over here. <laughs> so the big boy game, as John John so eloquently put it, um, turns out that Kaspersky, very well known AV firm, was hacked, and they believe that this this malware is in the same family as the Dooku malware, hmm. which has been in the press a number of times, same mm -hmm. family as Stuxnet. Regardless, very high-level operation going on here. Um, so it seems that they don't know the initial infection vector. Uh, it was discovered when they were trying to test out a new method of finding um, suspicious code in the enterprise. Mm -hmm. And they were looking for code si signatures that were kind of out of place. Like they would take a look at all the machines in the enterprise, find out all the code signing certs for all the code, mm -hmm. and then stack them and say, what stands out? Mm -hmm. And they found that some, some code was signed by Han High Precision, Inc. Might be better known as Foxconn, which is, I believe it's a Taiwanese company, mm -hmm. very well known for making computer parts for HP, Dell, pretty much if you're an American computer company, your parts are coming in some way from Foxconn. Okay. So this, this is a stolen certificate from a major vendor, which is, if, if you're going to burn a stolen certificate as a cyber espionage group, 
you know, maybe Kaspersky is a high enough value target to burn it on. Mm -hmm. Anyway, interesting techniques being used here for persistence. Um, turns out that they didn't write, most of the machines that were infected had nothing written to disk, completely memory resident. Mm. Uh, and they would find uh, machines that had a high uptime, servers, things like that, that were always on, and use those to periodically reinfect other machines mm. upon their reboot mm. using a Windows um, zero day. So right. again, sophisticated stuff. If you're using zero days for your attacks, you, you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Some interesting tidbits in there. I think I don't know if this was a joke or a nod or a wink, but inside of the persistence mechanism, messages are being passed back and forth containing interesting strings. Uh, Romanian, Romanian antisec is one of them. Hmm. And the second one is ugly gorilla. Now, if you know anything about Chinese cyber espionage, ugly gorilla is known to be uh, a major player in that space. Mm -hmm. So it may have been someone trying to point a false flag. It may have been someone having a little bit of fun with malware analysts saying, haha, we're all in this, this community together. We know what we're talking about here, but mm -hmm. it's totally not us. Anyway, um, another interesting mechanism that was used was they put in, I would guess you would call it a tunnel driver, where they would infect certain machines that had network connectivity with a, a simple driver that was just there to, to pipe traffic around. So something similar to like an HTRAN tunnel right. or port to port or several other tools that we've seen APT actors use to just be able to maintain access from the outside. Right. So some machines get that and some machines get the real malware. So all in all, it's a pretty sophisticated operation going on. Mm -hmm. um, seems that there were other organizations also infected by this. Um, somebody involved with Iran nuclear negotiations. Mm -hmm. So the uh, so we have a little bit of uh, I mean some kind of special hiding techniques here and a yep. little bit of deception perhaps mixed in. Mm -hmm. So at least to at least raise some questions about where it might have come from and no no real conclusions here. Right? <laughs> Not, yet. Not yet. And the, every, every so often, yeah. Kaspersky's been releasing a little tidbit more, and here's, mm -hmm. here's more about the persistence. Here's more about the victims that we know. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of question about Dooku in general. You know, there was perhaps a copycat of Stuxnet or something along those lines, and so we may never know the answer in the end, but it's uh, certainly an interesting evolution. So thanks for that. So, John, let's go back to you here. We'll talk a little bit about uh, Apple, and uh, I guess uh, nobody's impervious to bugs. No, but <laughs> Apple has a pretty good track record, um, yeah. although this one's interesting, and um, a researcher discovered this bug in Apple iOS, particularly mm -hmm. with the email client. So a lot of people who have iPhones will use the Apple reader, uh, email reader, uh, to get their mail as opposed to some other you know, app that they might install. Uh, in there, the uh, the email app is it's paying attention to like the meta HTTP uh, redirect stuff that you can throw in there that tag which it shouldn't be, mm -hmm. and by doing that you can arbitrarily load remote HTML into the email. And what they've done is they did a little proof of concept, which is very interesting, using some nice HTML and um, uh, cascading style sheet stuff they were able to send an email that popped up a little dialogue uh, on the screen that looks just like the iCloud login. So mm -hmm. if you're on an iPhone and you go to the thing, and sometimes you see that kind of message like, oh, well, you know, I'm using my iCloud email. Maybe it doesn't remember my password. I got to type it in here in order to read this email. So it's very possible to use this as a, a avenue for phishing right. credentials and whatnot. So they did a little proof of concept of this. The only thing that I'm not crazy about is this researcher 
discovered it back in January at least, mm. um, in January timeframe, notified Apple about it. Apple hasn't released a fix for this yet. Um, and I guess he got a little frustrated and he released it, you know, um, released actual code on how to you mm. know, leverage this exploit up on GitHub. So now everybody has it and made everybody aware of it. Um, so that's probably not the best mm -hmm. avenue to do. So uh, this is one of these scenarios where when you're evaluating the vulnerability and the significance of that vulnerability, having the availability of source code for the exploit and being right. able to integrate as a part of another, that's, right. that's kind of risky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's basically the, the, the story in a nutshell is that mm -hmm. this is out there. So I'd be wary of it if you see strange dialogues popping up when you're reading email on your iPhone or your iPad. Um, you might want to think twice before just assuming that it really is the, you know, for mm -hmm. that particular application, uh, like iCloud or whatnot. Yeah. Um, Suspect so, everything. Yeah, be suspicious, but don't lose your mind. Some of us are a little too paranoid. <laughs> I will say that in my own experience with this bug, because someone asked me to take a look at it with them, is that it seems that Gmail is just dropping any email that contains that code in it. Oh, really? So at least so they're, they're aware of it. some filtering yeah. there. Yeah, which is cool. Um, and we were also trying to reproduce actually sending the email. And there's, there's something interesting that keeps happening whenever we test it, and maybe this is just us not quite getting it. Mm -hmm. But um, the syntax of the bug itself seems to be affected by if you're sending through certain servers and they may do a little bit of munging here and there to correct whatever your HTML content is, mm -hmm. they might be adding in extra quotes that break the attack. Right, right. So it's, it's not 100% baked and you know, drop it in and go from the, the GitHub code that's out there. Mm -hmm. There might be a little bit more you have to understand in order to send that first email. The rest of the attack code looks like it works. Right, it's right. just getting that, that, that email in there right, with the proper syntax. Getting the initial trigger to actually yeah. work mm -hmm. in order to display it, right? Okay, okay. Cool. cool. So let's look at the internet weather for the last week here. And uh, first item on the list is uh, sources scanning on port 9101 UDP. This port is actually registered to uh, Bacula Director, which uh, Bacula is actually a uh, application that permits system administrators to uh, manage backup recovery and uh, verification of computer data across network, a uh, network of computers of different types. So uh, I'm not personally familiar with that application, but it turns out that the activity here apparently is not associated with that specific application. John, you had done a little bit of uh, investigation into this, and uh, it looks like BitTorrent, right? It's definitely distributed hash table BitTorrent right. type requests going all over the place right. uh, for this 9101. And I'd like to take some more time to look at it, but I guarantee you that's what it is, but yeah. I don't know what the purpose is. Right, and so, uh, but I'm gonna take a little bit of a leap here, is it, it, it appears to have a, a relationship with that port 17788 UDP activity that we've been reported on for some time here. And so just to sort of uh, demonstrate or show this a little bit here, when we combine the two, you know, the existing activity associated with port 17788, which is the, uh, the blue activity, and then the 9101 UDP activity. It appears that perhaps, I, I'm thinking that maybe another network's been set up to do a little bit of load balancing here of the uh, activity that had been before. And uh, so what we see is at the tail end here, as this uh, new activity is picking up, we start to see a little bit of a drop on this side. Now, one of the things, and John, you, uh, you sort of pointed out the observation, the time zones appear to be different. That is, the peak yeah. of activity for the 17788 is actually kind of opposite of the peak activity for the 91, 
0.01. That is in terms of the numbers of participants in the activity, which suggests that perhaps there's a regional separation of the activity. But there is also, you know, some other activity that sort of suggests that the two are related. So my belief is that these are related in some way. We'll see in time uh, whether that uh, went through a little further investigation. So those 24-hour cycles of that activity? Those are 24 like? hours, yeah. Interesting. So daily cycle. Next item here is scan probes on port 513 TCP. This is associated with R login and uh, we're looking at 60 days of data here. Part, you know, basically to show two things. One is there was another sort of set of activity that occurred actually around the middle of May and uh, the more recent activity that we're showing that actually just a day or so ago. From what I could see this appears to be associated with researchers. Um, you know, obviously R login is, you know, it's got some similarities to Telnet. Uh, but generally associated with automated processes to be able to get access to uh, other systems. Clearly something you don't want exposed to the internet. So uh, there hasn't been a lot of scanning activity about, you know, around this port previously, but we are seeing some more recent activity and a few that uh, uh, might be something you want to check for. Looking at the top 10 most probed ports, uh, at the top of the list here we have port 135. We're going to take a little closer look at that, followed by port 23 port 80 TCP, you know, none of these uh, others are really much of a surprise. 443 TCP, 22 TCP, 1900 UDP, that seems to be uh, larger than we uh, uh, typically see. More scanning activity looking for these uh, SS um, service, uh, discovery, service protocol. Discovery, discovery protocol. I'm getting uh, acronym lock here. <laughs> <laughs> SSDP. Um, and then followed by port 445 TCP, port 25 TCP, that's, uh, that's actually a new entry into the list, jumped up 20 slots. Then followed by 1433 TCP, and then uh, we have uh, 8 ICMP, which is a ping request showing up in there as well. So looking at port 135 TCP, we're looking at 90 days of activity here. This has been fairly typical of what we've seen previously. There's a particular organization, they have a number of IP addresses on the order of hundreds that are doing scanning activity. It comes and goes over time, and uh, but more recently, uh, a little more aggressive than we've seen for quite some time. So uh, for some reason, this is going on. You know, port 135 is still one where you can find old machines that are exposing this to the internet. You'll want to be paying attention to that, particularly if you have older machines exposed to the internet. Next one here, which is the uh, the port 25 activity. You know, there's always scanning activity on port 25, and it's fairly aggressive. The spammers are looking for open mail relays, and this is the uh, the path to do that. So we're looking at 30 days of activity, and the majority of probes that we uh, have picked up in the more recent, you know, sort of spikes in activity were coming from China. I would say on, in terms of orders of magnitude greater than the uh, sort of the, the followers associated with that. So lots of probes coming from there. Looking at the top 10 most sources doing that probing, well at the top of the list here, port 23 TCP. We're going to take a closer look at that, followed by 445. I mentioned the ICMP 8. And then uh, we have some other ports. And we already talked about the 17788, as well as the uh, 1900 UDP uh, activity that's associated with uh, that 1900 being uh, reflective denial of service attacks. The uh, scan sources on port 23 TCP, it's actually you know, pretty elevated over the last, uh, I would say, about a month here. Uh, we're up around, on a given hour, seeing on order of about 70,000 sources doing that scanning activity, certainly up from what we'd seen 90 days ago. So uh, there is a sort of what I would describe as a resurgence of uh, scanning, accumulating uh, a botnet, most likely Internet of Things. We didn't investigate for this particular report the specific sources that are doing that, 
uh, scanning activity, but invariably it's been those internet of insecure things, things that are exposing things like Telnet to the internet that are uh, uh, basically contributing to this activity. That's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find ATT Threat Track at the ATT Tech Channel. Uh, it's also available on YouTube as well as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security, and you'll find tweets about uh, particular articles that are uh, posted associated with uh, Threat Track for attention, as well as a number of other uh, security topics. I'd like to thank you, Manny, John, and Matt. Thanks for joining today. My name is Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.